The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's a delight to have you here. Last night I thought it might be my first time in 12 years I was going to have to call in sick. I didn't know what we would do, but the Lord was kind to grant me enough to get here, so I celebrate that. No hugs this morning, but um, open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 51. And as you turn to Isaiah 51, I'm going to pray. Father, we want to be among those who pursue righteousness in the right way and not in the wrong way. I pray that we would know our weakness and need and that we would find the righteous one absolutely sufficient. Thank you for letting us be together. Thank you for drawing in so many. I pray that your word would speak. Thank you that you've already been so present through worship, through song, worship, through prayer. Now I pray that there would be worship through teaching, through learning. Awaken our affections for you. Draw us in deeper and higher. You oppose proud people. Those who are self-reliant, you will destroy. So may we not be among them. Help us to guard ourselves from a deceitful, unbelieving heart that would lead us to turn away from the living God. Meet us now, I pray, as we look through this rich, rich text in Christ. Amen. All right, you've got a a new handout of my study from this week, my outline, and then on the two inside portions, my updated ESV translation. Feel free to follow along there. From Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 11, we heard the third of four Songs of the servant. That is the servant person who is the servant savior in this book who will save the servant people, but it's too light a thing that he would save just the people. God will make him a light unto the nations. In verse 10 of chapter 50, we read these words. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's one group. A group that fears and follows the teachings of the servant. The servant whose ears are awakened as one who is taught, who who wakes up morning by morning, we learned in verse 4, to 
gain instruction that he might strengthen those who are weary. It's the weary who follow the voice of the servant. But then there's another group, verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, by the torches that you've kindled. This you have from your hand. You shall lie down in torment. So in the midst of darkness, there's two options. You either make your own torch and live self-reliantly en route to destruction, or... You follow the light that the servant provides through the darkness and find hope. Chapter 51 opens talking to the first of these two groups. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. This me here is a little tricky because the last person that talked to us in first person was the servant. The servant said in verse 7, The Lord helps me, therefore I've not been disgraced, therefore I've set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. That is, the Lord is near to me. He's the one who declares me righteous. This is the servant Savior declaring this. So he asks, who will contend with me? If God has found me right, no words of man, no words of those who are hostile to God will be able to stand against him. And indeed, Jesus was vindicated, declared right before God, and his rightness is then counted as ours through faith. So here in chapter 51, we begin to hear this person talking, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. And and it gives me the sense almost as though these are the words of the teacher and they're the very words that are supposed to sustain the weary through suffering. Listen to me, listen to me. And yet as we go through this, it's going to be clear that Yahweh's talking. And so it, we've seen it a few other spots in the book already where it just, it's, it's as if there's this blending of, of the Lord with His servant. Remember, the, the servant is the one who will be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one that is sent from above In the very nature God, who becomes a man and can be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's his name, Mighty God. This servant is is very akin to the triune being called Yahweh. We start out here with a charge. You're going to see a charge in verse... One, then there's the second charge in verse 4, and then a third charge in verse 7. Track with me. We start out with a charge to consider how God can make much from little. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and look to Sarah, who bore you. 
For he, Abraham, was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Now notice in the very first verse, the call is, listen up, listen to me. And then there's a specific audience declared, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And then there's a colon in the ESV. So so we get listen, and then we find out what you're supposed to hear. So that's why I distinguish there's the call, and then there's the content. And that's exactly the pattern we're going to see three times. So as, as I continue to work through this, identify the call to listen or or pay attention versus the content of what they're supposed to hear. The ESV doesn't put a colon after this point in the other examples, but I think the exact same pattern is happening. We continue in verse 4. A charge to look through global punishment, the world's destruction, to eternal salvation. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, Because the law, a law, will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. So the call was, give attention to me. And then he says in verse 6, content, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. So we start out with the call to listen in verse 1, give attention in verse 4. Here's verse 7. A charge to not fear man's reproach. Listen to me, you who pursue You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, there's the call, listen up, the content of what they're supposed to hear. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. The word of the Lord. Three charges, each with a call, and each with content. We begin with number one. Notice how in each of these three, we have these vocative statements. Statements of address. Who he's talking to. Each one of them has it. So we saw in verse one, Listen to me, pursuers of righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Verse 4, give attention, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. And then verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is the law. So three groups, and I think they're all the same group. The pursuers of righteousness, God's true people, and those knowing righteousness. 
So we're framed by these comments about righteousness. They pursue righteousness. They know righteousness. And in the middle, this statement of God's people. Yet, as we'll see, I don't think it's talking about all the people. There's a people within the people. We begin in verse 1. A charge to consider how God can make much from little. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. To pursue righteousness. Righteousness is about right order in our world. That's what it is. Righteousness is about right order. Insofar as you align with God's definition of right order, you're declared righteous. At the highest level of right order is God exalted over all things. God's passion for God's righteousness is his passion for his own glory. Because that right order exists where he's at the top. And the problem is that we've fallen short of that glory, that is, none of us are righteous. But here, here the voice says, if you're out there hearing me, and you're a pursuer of righteousness, then I've got something to say for you. Now, as I already said, this, this seems to just flow right out of chapter 50. And in chapter 50, we learned about a teacher, we learned about a follower, and we learned about those who follow him. So, in verse 4 of chapter 50, the servant person says, The Lord's given me the tongue of one who's been taught so that I can sustain those who are weary with a word. He's a teacher, and the weary are somehow receiving his teaching and being upheld. Now, not only that, we learned in verse 5 that he's also one who has an ear opened, and it's resulting in his obedience, so that he's not rebellious to God, but follows God in everything. He's the perfect follower. And then, in verse 10, it said, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? So just as the servant is following God, if you really fear God, you'll be one who's following the servant. Now we're learning in verse chapter 51, 1, are you a pursuer of righteousness? Well, verse 10 how does it describe one who pursues righteousness? What do you see? Just unpack it in verse 10 of chapter 50. Fear? Fear whom? Fear the Lord. Obey whom? The servant. Then what? Trust in the Lord. And rely on his God. So all of those are part of a pursuer of righteousness. But then there's one other element that's implied. If indeed there's this link between obeying the voice of the servant who's a teacher. And we learned about him being a teacher and to whom he teaches in verse 4. 
What do we learn also? This would be an additional element to those who fear the Lord in verse 4 of chapter 50. What do we learn about those who are being taught by the servant? That they hear, okay. It's not they who sustain others, but they're the others. So if they need to be sustained, they're, they're the weary. That those who fear the Lord are those who are not self-reliant, but who are looking outside themselves to His supply. Now, pursuing righteousness. This term's already shown up in chapter 50. But you don't see it in the ESV, but we commented on it last week. It's in verse 8. Very literally, what it says is, He who declares me righteous is near. That's, that's how the ESV renders this, renders the the term to declare righteous as vindicate. He who vindicates me is near. So you've got God up in heaven who's looking down to the servant person whom He sent to earth on mission and the servant person declares, He has declared me right. He's declared me righteous. And now... The question is, will you pursue righteousness? You out there who are pursuing righteousness, and verse 10 said, who are obeying the voice of the servant, and in verse 8 it said, the servant is the righteous one. You tracking with me? You who pursue righteousness. This is everything opposite of self Reliance. This is not the group that's mentioned in verse 11 who kindle their own fire and walk through the dark to their own destruction. Now, this little phrase, pursue righteousness, only shows up three times in the Bible. This verb, pursue, and this noun, righteous, it only shows up three times in the Bible. So there's a back story to this this phrase, and there's a front story to this phrase. Here's the back story. Not there. To pursue righteousness is to follow the righteous one. That's what I just said. Here's the back story. It's in Deuteronomy 16, verse 20. The ESV says, justice and justice only you shall pursue. But it's the exact same word that's translated righteousness here. Pursue righteousness. This is the synthesis statement for all that Israel was supposed to be about. And in that context, the point was, keep the commandments of the Lord. And do it perfectly. Because Moses had declared, it will be righteousness for us if we were careful to do all, all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Do you want righteousness? Then be a perfect law obeyer. And yet chapter 50 enters in of Isaiah 
in a book that's filled with the testimony, you're not reaching it. You're not the perfect law bearer. All of you are heart of heart. All of you are blind and deaf under the judgment of God. And into that world comes the servant to help those who are weary, to help those who are in the dark, and yet recognize they can't find their way out. And so, this pattern, I want to propose, is actually contrary to what we're seeing here. Because the pursuit of righteousness has already been being set up. Nobody can do this well, but God is righteous. His servant is righteous. Will you be those who trust in the name of the Lord, verse 10 of chapter 50, and rely on your God rather than on your own attempts to be righteous? That's the backstory to our verse. Brother John? Yeah, it seems like you could understand that. Today, a teacher is someone who speaks to the mind, the intellect. But in Christ's day, when he taught, he had disciples who learned as much from what he did as what he said. I mean, they followed him. Yes. And I get the sense that this teacher, um, uh, you know, is, is one who embodies what God himself commands or, or proposes. And in that sense, as Christ embodies what God uh, wants and proposes, and so on. In that sense, it is in that teacher only that we can come to a knowledge of God. I mean, that just seems like it all fits together, even the Deuteronomy verse. Well, the, yeah, the reality is that though no Israelite could pursue righteousness perfectly, like it's calling for, and therefore be declared righteous, Jesus represents all Israel. He is Israel. And he is the one who is guiltless before God. That's what we said. Bring all of your, your uh, try to condemn me. You can't condemn me because I'm right. That is, I was the one who fulfilled all this on your behalf. Will you be among those who, who trust in me rather than upon yourselves? Here's how Paul talks, and this is the third place where we see the verb pursue and righteousness side by side. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32 tells us, because they did not pursue it by faith. This book... We, we saw at the beginning of this semester is ultimately written less for Isaiah's audience and more for us today. For Isaiah's audience, God said, it's going to be like a sealed book that when you give it to them and you say, read it, they're going to be like, I can't read it. The book is sealed. But the day is coming when the deaf will hear the words of a book. It'll no longer be sealed to them. They will all be taught by God. They'll all understand Him. They'll all know Him. They will all experience righteousness. Question, the front story, does Paul, 
Paul anticipate that statement in Romans 2, verses like 5 through 7, where he's I think Paul in Romans 2, 5 through 7, where he declares, for those who pursue glory and honor and immortality, that he's talking about not a bad group, but a good group. Who, who actually enjoys the blessing, but only by faith through Christ. Exactly. Exactly. Um, just the hymn we sang, the last verse of the hymn we sang this morning, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And therefore, because of that, we can approach. Amen. So it's, it's, it's like Isaiah is, I believe, um, wanting us to redefine our pursuit of righteousness. He's wanting us to recognize that the pursuit of righteousness is going to be by dependence, not self-reliance. It's going to be by faith in the righteous one. Turn with me to Isaiah 53 and look at verse 10. Beginning in verse 10 and then we'll go to verse 11. Isaiah 53 is all about the servant person who suffers on behalf of the many in order to see them accounted righteous, even though none of them are. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush the servant person. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So he dies, and then he has sight after his death. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, that is the servant, shall see and be satisfied. By the servant's knowledge shall the righteous one, by, by his own knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. If you are a pursuer of righteousness, in the days of Isaiah, you're going to be recognizing that Moses isn't the answer. I have to look beyond Moses to a supply of another who will meet Moses' demands that I cannot meet. Turn with me back to Isaiah 51. The seekers of the Lord are going to be dependent ones who are looking outside of themselves toward an obedient, righteous servant. So he calls them to listen. If you're among that group who's pursuing righteousness by faith, if you're among them, then here's what I want you to hear. So we get the content. A charge to consider how God can make much from little. Look. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. So it says to the rock. And in Isaiah, we've learned about a rock a lot. But in every one of these rock passages, it's capital R. Notice, Isaiah 17. You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock. 
You've forgotten God. You haven't remembered Him. This stable one, this strong tower, this foundation, this rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine of a stranger. I think there must be a comma there. You're going to be destroyed. Isaiah 26.4, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart is when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. God is the rock, Yahweh. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know of no other. So we've got that in the background. And then we read this text. It says, look to the rock. From which you were hewn. Look to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, my initial inclination, and and I still think this might be right, because the only person that's been called a rock in this book is God, is that the, the point is look to your rock. Look to the rock, capital R. But then this verb is repeated, the the Command is repeated in verse 2, and it, the rock isn't a person. Now you're looking at Abraham and looking at Sarah. And it specifically says, look to Abraham your father, to Sarah who bore you. So, I'm wondering if, is Abraham the rock? Is Sarah the quarry, or is it kind of an and-or? We're supposed to be thinking about God as the ultimate one who brought you into existence, yet He did it through the agency of Abraham and Sarah. And I'm prone to think that's what what it is, because I struggle to think that they would read rock and not think the Lord. So think about the rock from which you were hewn. This idea of of God over all things. Look to Abraham and to Sarah. Back in Deuteronomy 32, it actually talked about God this way. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Um, I think I might be missing where you're heading. I think he's talking here about, in our passage, he's talking to these pursuers of righteousness and seeing them as coming from somewhere. Um, both of the, both the command to, well, the command to listen and the command to look are masculine plural, Look to the rock from which you, that's a plural group, were hewn. To the quarry from which you were dug. So, you mentioned Christ. I'm struggling to see. It seems to me he's just calling this people who are pursuing him to 
consider their origins, and he's finding those origins both in God, whom the nation forgot. God gave Israel birth, but it ultimately came through Abraham and Sarah. Am, am I missing it? I was thinking of Christ as the one who provided that Abram might become Abraham, the father of many nations through faith. Mm-hmm. But that Christ worked in him specifically, and so it's both. That was just my thought. So you're reading Christ as the rock in verse 1. Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Okay. And that Christ was the seed and worked as the seed in Abram to become Abraham. And so the inference to Abraham is also alluding to Christ. Okay. Power in Abram to make him. The, the Christ language is focused specifically on the servant person. And I think in verse 1, when it mentions the rock, all of these, uh, wait a second, all those texts right there are addressing... This, tr- this bigger triune being, not just, just the servant person, but Yahweh as the source of all, and specifically the source of the one who brought forth Israel. Um, so not, just speci- not focused only on the second person of the Trinity, who would ultimately be the one through whom Abraham would bless the nations, but looking backwards at uh, how God brought, how God, the triune God, all, including Father, Son, and Spirit, brought Israel into existence through Abraham and Sarah. Um, but your f- focus on the father of a multitude is definitely part of this, and ultimately, Christ is the one through whom that comes. So, why does he call them to look at Sarah and Abraham? Who were Abraham and Sarah? Okay, so Abraham and Sarah both are preeminent examples of someone looking to God looking outside of themselves. Why did they have to look outside of themselves? He was old right. and, and Sarah was barren. Was barren. And exactly. So Sarah's 90 when she finally gives birth to Isaac, unbelievable. And then Abraham's faith to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. To be willing to sacrifice your promise, your miracle, if that's what God calls you to in faith. 
he, he obviously had a massive amount of faith in the God of promise. So, look to Abraham, look to Sarah, and then look at the end of verse 2, for, there's the reason, for, and this is the specific reason he wants to draw attention to them, and it relates to everything that's just been said. For, he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. There's the first clear reason. From one to many, by faith in God's ability. Because, yes, he's as good as dead. He's old. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. He's going to be a father of one nation for a very long time. Even people like Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabitess, Uriah the Hittite, they become part of the single nation. He's the father of a nation. But the hope is for the day when he will move from the father of a nation to the father of a multitude. And Genesis 22, 17 and 18 tells us it will only happen when the single, male, perfectly obedient offspring arises through whom the world will be blessed. But remember, Abraham... He was nothing, and I promised that I would make him exceedingly fruitful, that I would make him into nations, that kings would come from him. Here's Paul. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father. There it is. Look to Abraham, your father, that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And here he is. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was, as was already said, as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong increasingly in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Why? Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, there it is, look to Abraham your father, to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him. From one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars in the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, it's in this context that I find it intriguing. The text started with this. Listen to me, you pursuers of righteousness. And he doesn't go back to consider Moses. No, he goes back to the father of faith. Remember, the context here is from one to many. And the Lord brought Abram outside. He's just asked the question, how do, how do I know that I'll have an heir? I don't have any heir. Indeed, Eliezer of Damascus. Sorry, I don't have any seed. I don't have any offspring. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. And God says, no, no. One from your own loins will be your heir. And the Lord brought him outside. He said, look up to the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. He was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. 
And Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him righteousness. I think very likely Isaiah's got this in the back of his mind. From one to many. How? By faith. It would take a miracle. And Paul in Romans 4, he points back, this, the entire chapter is pointing back to Genesis 15, the life of Abraham and saying, Christian, you want to know what it means to live by faith? Consider Abraham, who was, whose body was as good as dead, whose wife was barren, and he trusted God to do for him what he couldn't do on his own. Not only that, he was trusting God to do for him what he couldn't do in his own, ultimately through the promised offspring. That's what faith is. It would take a miracle. Pursue righteousness in a way that magnifies the grace of God, in a way that recognizes the miracle. Act the miracle, Isaiah is saying. Pursue righteousness, but do it by faith, not in yourself. Consider Abraham. God was able from one to make many. And He did so through faith. Faith in a God. Remember Genesis 18 when Sarah is inside the tent. The three guys show up and say, one year from now your wife's going to have a baby. And Sarah, I mean, these are three, three guys are talking to Abraham, and, but the wife heard She's in there in the tent, and one year from now, your wife's going to have a baby. What did Sarah do? Ha! I didn't laugh, she says. You did too laugh. Is anything too difficult, wonderful for God? Using the exact same word that we find in Isaiah 9-6, he shall be wonderful counselor. Is anything too wonderful, anything too difficult, anything too miraculous? Consider Abraham. You pursuer of righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Now, maybe you can help me go further than I could go. In verse 3, there's a word here that the ESV translated for. It's the exact same word that we saw in the middle of verse 2, for. And, but I was struggling to figure out how it was supposed to work together. So you'll see on my handout, I didn't translate it for, I used another word that is able to be used, surely. Surely. And part of the challenge is that the, the Hebrew forms that the ESV is translated as present. He comforts, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden. Each of those three forms is, seems to, it's, it's portraying an event as a, as a complete reality, most likely in past time, as if it's already been accomplished. And I think it's still prophecy, it's prediction about the future, but there's a certainty about it. I've rendered it this way. So, the end of verse 2, Look to Abraham, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. That was the goal, to bless him and multiply him. And now, remember what's on the palms of my hand from Isaiah 49. Surely, 
Surely the Lord has comforted Zion as if it's already accomplished, as if all the blessings of Abraham have already been experienced. This is what's on my mind, God says. Surely the Lord has comforted Zion. He's comforted all of her waste places. He's made her wilderness like Eden. Well, you can't get much more like new creation. It's like Eden what he's doing. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. So I'm, I'm understanding this as kind of an additional comment that, that proves he has fulfilled all that he promised Abraham. Surely this is what I'm about. Yahweh will comfort Zion. And it's described here as if it's already happened. Surely, Yahweh is doing this. He has accomplished it already in his mind. It's going to come about. Now this term comfort, anybody recall any other place in the book where we get this language of comfort? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Handel's tenor solo, right? Isaiah 40. Last week, our sister Lynn, she gave me such a sweet gift. She came in with, a, with two pieces of paper, all handwritten out, where she had gone through all three movements of Handel's Messiah and written down all of the scripture references that are associated with each part of, of the entire, what's it called? Oratorio? Okay. It was, it's great. And this is the first one. Comfort, comfort. Same words, same repetition. Comfort. God comforts Zion. Notice again, the focus is on a city. The city is the bride. And the bride has offspring. We've already seen that from previous weeks. That This summarizes all those who will be part of this future Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to her. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Oh, that's comfort. Cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned. It's only getting better. Cry to her that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Everything is paid for. Comfort. How about this one? Just turn over to Isaiah 52, 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing. Your waste places, O Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. In Isaiah's day, this wasn't happening yet. But he's a prophet predicting things in the future as if they're already accomplished. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the earth, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And that sets us up for Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Yeah. When you use, I mean, when Scripture used the word just then, uh, the salvation of the Lord, I mean, it seems like the New Testament almost uses that in a whole more complete new way. I mean, it seems like a lot of the references to salvation in the Old Testament talk about um, blessing, but not necessarily an understanding of uh, of ultimately being saved from our 
sin and, and entering into the presence of God. Am I wrong about that? Is talk about the word salvation a minute. Is that, I wonder what they're understanding by the word salvation. It is, the, the term salvation is, is a period of deliverance on the other side of, of not only curse on the people, but curse on the planet. So they're envisioning a massive global punishment that on the other side is called salvation. Salvation includes destruction of all enemies. Salvation includes a restoration in the presence of God where he's in the middle of the people. And that is all part of the Old Testament vision. The presence, the deliverance from our own uh, struggles with sin, the fears that we have. Um, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 11, um, points in this direction when it says, 3 verse 11, On that day you shall not be put to shame. The you there is Zion. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst all your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst, this is salvation, a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. And then here it is again, they shall do no injustice. They, they've changed. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths any deceitful tongue for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Let me ask this a little differently. In, in my understanding, the word salvation is tied directly to resurrection. And I don't think it is in the Old Testament. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. It just seems like either that or there was a whole half of the leadership of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, that didn't get it either, that salvation is tied to resurrection. I, I, I'm confused by that. Salvation is much bigger in the new and in the old beyond resurrection. Resurrection is the start. So the day of the Lord is viewed as a, a day of punishment, and what follows out of it is somehow there's a, there's a people that still lives on the other side of punishment that have been preserved from the day of God's wrath, and what that preserved people are then part of a new creation. And that movement from death to life is at times portrayed as resurrection. And but then the resurrection continues on into life that is unending and unswerving. So we can have in Deuteronomy 32, 39, um, Behold, I, even I am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Because healing comes after wounding, it seems important that he kills first and then he makes alive. What's being envisioned here is life on the other side of death. And so Ezekiel 37, Israel has become a valley of dry bones. That's the same audience that Isaiah is addressing to. He just views them as dead to the core, senseless beings that have become as dead as their idols that they serve, having eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, hearts that don't understand. And yet into that world, God will come into a valley of dry bones and blow his spirit and he will um, awaken them so that they are now alive. And then it says he will put his spirit in them as if they become a new temple. 
Not a temple in their midst, but they become it, where the presence of God is in their midst, and then salvation goes on. So that, that movement of salvation is a move that includes resurrection. And we're going to see it, I, I just read it in Isaiah 53, if he will offer himself as a guilt offering, then on the other side of that, he will see his offspring and he will be satisfied. If if the servant person is going to die like a lamb on the offering, and yet on the other side of death is going to see, see in a way that will satisfy him, then for the joy set before him, he endures all the way through the cross in order to experience the life on the other side. And those in him are led through that resurrection. Um where Isaiah 52 is, we're going 52 and 53, he's going to bear, the question is, how do we get there? How do we experience the resurrection? He experiences our curse and pain, and then we are accounted with his righteousness. All that's Isaiah 53. I guess playing off of that, it was the Sadducees who didn't believe the resurrection. Right. So, with their view of it, that... There's going to be a day of the Lord, and there's going to be a preserved people. But those are people in the future that don't necessarily include us. Is that the way that they view that? That they didn't believe in the resurrection? Sort of more of a just, it's future people. It is the nation of Israel. But But they don't get to benefit from it? I don't know much about the Sadducees, other than that they were wrong. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't even know why they began to think that. Resurrection is talked about pretty explicitly at some key points in the Old Testament. Um, so, but I don't, I don't know how they put all their pieces together, but they were wrong. We need to call class to an end here. Um, So, the vision that's being set before us is that first charge, consider how God can make much from little. And the ultimate much is portrayed in images like the Garden of Eden, where the land that was once desolate becomes just like this, as if it's brand new creation. And this is the motivation. Consider, look to Abraham, you who pursue righteousness, and this is supposed to keep them going. To, to gain hope from the fact that God can take what seems like nothing and make much out of it. And for today, that's, that's as far as we got, and that's the word that we take from here. That we have a God who when it looks like there's little, can make much. Because nothing is impossible for him. So the call is, look outside of yourself in faith in the righteous one. Trust in him and find the persevering grace that Abraham and Sarah found in the midst of all their weakness. To keep going when it didn't look like anything was going to come about, they kept trusting. They kept trusting. 
Now we're going to get, we're going to get mention of Abraham and Sarah again in Isaiah 54, and it's going to be the same message. And yet it's going to be portrayed now as the one who was barren being explosive in her productivity in the new covenant. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who's able to work miracles going against all that seems possible. Thank you for giving us the example of Abraham and Sarah who trusted you by faith and we already in our midst see you fulfilling such glorious things. And we're, we remember that we have already, says the writer of Hebrews, come to the heavenly Jerusalem where you are seated, where our souls are kept. We have deep hope that you are at work, even when everything around us may look dark. So help us trust in the one who is the light, not looking to ourselves, not making our own torches. Help us fear the Lord and obey the servant. In Christ I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.